0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcralaleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. very week, I had the great joy of visiting one of our homebound members. And my dear sister in the past had given me an article called, You Might Be a Southern Baptist If... You might be a Southern Baptist if. Here's number one. You might be a Southern Baptist if you think John the Baptist started the SBC. <laughs> number two, you might be a Southern Baptist if you think God's presence is always strongest on the back three pews. If you're amening from there, I, I can't hear you. <laughs> number three, you might be a Southern Baptist if, number three, you think Amazing Grace is the national anthem. <laughs> Number four, you might be a Southern Baptist if, number four, the first complete sentence you uttered was, we've never done it that way before. Number five, you might be a Southern Baptist if you judge the quality of the sermon by the amount of sweat worked up by the preacher. Number six, you might be a Southern Baptist if your definition of fellowship has something to do with food. Number seven, you might be a Southern Baptist if you've ever wondered when Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong would ever be paid off. (laughs) Number 13, you might be a Southern Baptist if you ever wake up in the middle of night craving fried chicken and interpret the feeling as a call to preach. (laughs) Number 14, you might be a Southern Baptist if you believe you're supposed to take a covered dish to heaven. (laughs) I love that one. So our sister gave me that. She said she was going to either give it to Bill Bailey or to me, and I'm glad that she gave it to me this morning. Now, these are fun, silly examples, right? But they do remind us of something that is helpful for today's passage and that's why I share them. Every human group, every social group, whether it's overtly religious or conceives of itself as secular, every group of humans has man-made values and traditions that start to shape the way you view life. Because every time humans come together, We have our own culture of man-made expectations about how life should be lived and what a life well-lived looks like. And to be clear, this happens in places where there are buildings with steeples or in internet chat rooms. It can happen in any social group that meets. So there are cultural values that define the way the Buddhist temple community works and the way the CrossFit community works. They both have strong values as to how you should live. There are strong values that govern and guide a mosque prayer team or a fantasy football league. (laughs) They both have high commitment that they expect you to strive to achieve. And there are traditions that shape the life of a Baptist Sunday school class or a Jeep community of drivers. All human groups have values and traditions and routines that are actually human in their origin that at some point we start to think have divine authority to them. In today's passage, Jesus will very strongly assert there is no power in man-made rituals. Whether those traditions happen in a building with an ornate steeple or a neon sign, Jesus will also strongly assert there is no infallible authority in human ideas, whether they're in the Book of Mormon or the New York Times. Jesus will further assert that there is no powerful ability in merely human efforts because humans are deficient to address our greatest problem and our most fundamental need. So today, I've titled our sermon, Fake Religion, because I believe fake religion is the drift that we are all prone to when we start to believe that merely human authority and ability can address our fundamental problem and greatest need. So the title is Fake Religion and I have four observations that I think Jesus is making. If you have your bulletin, you'll see number one. Here's number one. Fake religion is based on human authority even over God's word. Look in Matthew 15 verse one. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Just a little piece of information for those of you who have been here for a while. This is the first time Pharisees have come from Jerusalem to challenge Jesus. And throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, all of his opposition will be now from Jerusalem. Now they're coming from Jerusalem because he's so well known. And say, verse 2, why do your disciples, Jesus, if you're such a good teacher, then how come your followers break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, in the last year and a half of COVID life, we've heard a lot about washing your hands, (laughs) but this passage has nothing to do with hygiene. We've heard a lot about washing your hands. There's been PSAs, there's been announcements. Many of the things that I assumed were common sense beforehand have been now put into public print, but in this passage, he's not talking about hygiene at all. In the first century, the Jewish religious leaders, primarily the Pharisees, had created hundreds of man-made traditions that they looked to as authoritative truth, even though they were actually human in their origin. Today they've been bound and they're sold as the Mishnah. You can find them at Barnes and Noble. Let me explain to you what their tradition was about hand washing. They believed that every Jew, every day, Would have to first pour water over his hands with his fingers pointing up and having the water fall off his wrist. Or sorry, his elbow. Then they'd have to put their fingers pointing down and wash with a very specific amount of water a second time and let the water drop off your fingertips. And then a third time you had to do it the opposite way, and you had to do this before, during, and after every single main meal. In fact, If you messed up the order of which way your fingers were pointing or which one you were supposed to do first, what was at stake was eternal life, according to their teaching. If you think I'm overstating it, let me quote one of the rabbis of the first century. Here's what he wrote. Whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands according to protocol may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. According to the traditions of the elders, eternal life could be earned by the rituals of human authority. So don't miss the big point of this passage. Where does authoritative, infallible truth come from? And look again in verse 2. According to the Jewish religious leaders, it comes from tradition. Now, the word elders in most of the New Testament refers to pastors or overseers, but here it refers to previous generations, previous teachers. They do not wash their hands. So how, Jesus, do you fail to do this? Let me press right up front then a passage that could have some complex realities. Let me make this part very clear at the beginning of the sermon. God's word is inerrant, infallible authority. It is truth. Man's words are errant, fallible, and liable to being wrong. And this is the fundamental problem at stake with Jesus and these leaders. But unsurprisingly, in our own pride, if we are told that we do not have all authority and truth, we may reject that and try to prove that we do have authority and ability. And that's the core issue of this passage. So number one, again, fake religion is based on human authority, even over God's word, no matter where that source comes from, anything other than God is not authoritatively infallible. But number two, there's something deeper happening beneath the surface. Fake religion cloaks selfishness. Look now in verse three. Jesus answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Notice what's really at stake here. The infallible commandment of God versus some human opinions and ideas. So why would humans ever wanna make their authority higher than God's? And there's an answer that's always true. Because that way we can pursue our own selfish desires, even cloaking them with religiosity. And that's what we're gonna read in verse four and five. So look in verse four. Don't, Don't miss the first two words. For God, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother, a very strong verb, must surely die. This is a passage repeated in the Old Testament in many places. So here's what God says, but notice verse 5, but you say. A whole sermon could be just that contrast. God commanded, but you say. God has revealed, but you think. God's infallible authority, but your own ideas, you see. So here's what God actually authoritatively has revealed, but here's what people want to do. So verse five, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. Now this is something that maybe sounds strange to you. Let me give some background of it. In the other gospels, the word korban is used. That's the technical term that was used in the first century for this practice. It was like having an offshore bank account under a shell company that only you knew about and no one else could touch, but here's how it worked in the first century. In the first century, if someone was hitting adulthood, maybe they're in their 40s their 50s, and their parents are aging, and their parents are at an age where they need financial resource, but the 40 or 50 old adult child says, I don't care about my parents, I wanna keep the money for me. Now, how can I do that in a way that my parents can't touch the money and I alone can touch it? And here's what they would do. They would dedicate it to the temple that's called Korban. And once it was publicly dedicated to the temple, it would go to the temple after that person dies. But before they die, they're the only one allowed to touch it. So it's a way to tell your mom and dad, oh, mom, dad, I would love to take care of you as you age, but you know, I dedicated all that money to the temple so you can't touch any of it, but I'm still allowed to use some of it when I would like to. One commentator, James Edwards, explains it this way. A son declared his property Korban, which at his death would pass into the possession of the temple. In the meantime, however, the son retains control over the property and his control deprives his parents of the support they would otherwise need in their old age. Another writer puts it this way. A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent any other person from having it. Quite a text for Father's Day, right? (laughs) Here in this passage, people are using human authority, tradition, to cloak sinful desires. That's how it always works. So look in verse six. Jesus now quotes how the Jewish religious leaders were rebranding this sinfulness as acceptable. So notice, God calls it sin worthy of death. They say he need not honor his father. Have you noticed? that whenever we decide to update God's word, it always serves our selfish purposes. Notice how Jesus just condemns this. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Here's God's clear commandment, but you want to keep your tradition, and in doing so, you have nullified the inerrant truth of God's word. This is a good time for us to pause and realize this reality. In life, you will always follow either God's authority or human authority. Which one are you currently following? In your life, do you find yourself leaning on the word of God as a lamp into your feet and a light into your path? Or do you find yourself saying, you know, I know God said, but we really think Brothers and sisters, let God be true and let every man be a liar. Let us follow what the Word says, regardless of what we think. Fake religion really only cloaks selfishness. So, number one, fake religion is based on human authority, even over God's Word. Number two, fake religion cloaks selfishness. Number three, fake religion really only gives lip service to God and therefore it worships in vain. Look in verse seven. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When we make human authority truth, we nullify the word of God, and even our ostensible worship is in vain, and our honor is only lip service. These strong condemnations are ones we need to hear again because this same problem happens today. It happens in churches and it happens in broader culture. Let me speak to both. Here are some ways this happens in churches. In churches even, we sin in this same way when we decide that God needs a cultural upgrade so that he can fit in better with the values of the moment. Often in my ministry, I've talked to someone who had said something like this. Now, Josh, I know the Bible says this explicitly, but you know we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. To which I normally respond, because history is infallible? <laughs> you think history can't get anything wrong? In 20 or 30 years, history might change what you are currently thinking is the right side of history and it will be the wrong side of history. Who cares whether or not we're on the right side of history, let's be on the right side with God. So this passage makes very clear, you can say things that are according to the commandments of men, but if they're not according to the commandments of God, they're wrong and your worship is empty and worthless. Perhaps your entire approach to God up to this moment has been fake. If you won't follow the commandments of God over human commandments, then Jesus is not your king. In fact, there's another way we do this. Churches actually give language that sounds Christian and give all the right God talk. But when there's a divergence between what the Bible says and what the church tradition teaches, we give the nod to the church. When I was a boy, uh, my parents came from Roman Catholicism. And Roman Catholicism literally taught in something that Roman Catholics call the magisterium, and magisterium means that if the Bible says this, but if church tradition's over here, we're gonna stick with church tradition. Let me explain to you what we must do as people who believe in God and his word. If any creed or any confession, or dare I say this week, any convention, disagrees with the word of God, we will stick with the word of God. If the culture goes here or a denomination goes here, but the commandments of God go this way, then again, let God be true and let every man be a liar. Our commitment is to our King Jesus over above all would-be rulers. Now don't miss the subtlety of this because not only can you deny God's authority by overtly subverting it, you can also deny it like the Jewish religious leaders did by commanding as truth what is actually in addition to truth. See, the Jewish religious leaders made such a subtle error because they didn't outright say the word of God is false, but they made the word of God false by adding their own traditions and requiring them as if they were divine truth, In the same way, humans can add their own ideas and treating them as authoritative actually undercuts the word of God. In fact, rather than us desiring to change the word of God, we should always desire the word of God to change us. And because God is eternally perfect and we are perfect, often flawed, we should expect that the regular cadence of our life is finding ourselves saying, you know, I used to think, but I was wrong, and I know that now from the Bible. You know, I used to, but I was wrong, and now I know that from the Bible. If you can't think of any time you've changed your mind over the last 30 years, we need to talk about what repentance is. Repentance means that constantly God is course correcting me, because he's God, and I need to learn how to be like him from one degree of glory to the next through faith in his son. So yes, even in the church, we make the error of making the commandments of men higher than the wisdom of God. But not only does it happen in the church, it happens outside the church. We live in America, and in America, there's a lot of Christianese that people use. Lots of God talk, and God talk is something that could be beneficial for you in certain settings and in certain circumstances. And yet, if we use God talk, but then directly and explicitly reject what God actually says, then in fact, we've subverted who God is. Now we see this easiest in celebrities and politicians because they're in the public eye. But don't you think this happens commonly with the man on the street? Look in verse eight. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Do you think there are people like that in our country? Look in verse 9. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Do you think there are people like that on Twitter? (laughs) There are people like that all through our culture. And according to Jesus, that worship is worthless. So number one, fake religion is based on human authority, even as opposed to God's word. Number two, fake religion actually just cloaks selfishness. Number three, fake religion gives only lip service to God and it worships in vain. But now number four, fake religion never addresses humanity's fundamental problem in greatest need. Look in verse 10. And he called, Jesus called the people. He wants all the people to hear this. He called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. Verse 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Whether or not you did the hand washing ritual isn't actually what's gonna make you defiled. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know, Jesus, that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? If any of you think that Jesus never offended anyone, perhaps this would be a good memory verse for you. At many moments, the truth hurts. That's why Proverbs says, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you know why Jesus told the truth? Because he's a friend of sinners. And that will offend us at times. Now, Jesus is making clear something that's profoundly important. Look again in verse 11. It's not that stuff you do externally that defiles you, but what comes out of you, which means that you're already bad on the inside. So nothing on the outside could make you bad when you're already bad on the inside. And yet the religious leaders were telling people that they were fine. Let me say as a side application, did you know you can always find someone religious who will tell you what you wanna hear? You can always find someone quasi-religious who will tell you what you wanna hear. Well, I wanna persist in this sin. I promise you, you can find someone who in the name of God will encourage you to persist in your sin. Let the word of God correct everybody's opinion because the Pharisees are leading people astray and that's the point of verse 13 and 14. Look down in verse 13. He answered, every plant. Now, any Israelite would have listened because that was a common metaphor for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. You see, Paul makes this point in Romans and Galatians. So many Israelites thought, well, because I'm of the right nationality, surely I'm part of the people of God. Jesus is saying in verse 13, if you're not planted by God, you're gonna be rooted up. And now verse 14, you can always find a quasi religious person to lead you into sin. Verse 14, let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Many people pretend to speak to, for God, but they're actually speaking on their own authority. Verse 15, Peter said to them, Explain the parable to us. Verse 16, and he said, Are you also still without understanding? Some translations write, Are you so dull? You still haven't caught it? Verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach? It's expelled. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is telling us something profound. We have a problem at the heart level. No man-made tradition could ever fix us because spiritual defilement is internal. We have a heart problem. We don't need new routines. We need a new heart. Our problem is that we are sinners by nature, not just by action. Therefore, we have a problem that cannot be fixed by humans since we are all sinners from the heart out. Do you honestly believe that that is the state of the human heart? Do you believe that is the state of your heart? Can I tell you one reason I love Jesus so much? No one has ever told me how it is like Jesus I know I'm not the smartest guy in this room. Some of you are way, way smarter than I am. But I was thinking back this week over things that I've read. I've read lots of religious texts. I've read the Koran, I've read the Book of Mormon, I've read Buddhist teaching, I've read Hindu teaching. I've read lots of secular stuff. I've read the New York Times for years. I've started reading the Raleigh News and Observer since I've been here. I've read lots of self-help books. I've read business manuals. I've read uh, all sorts of how to be a better leader, how to be a better person. You know what all of them have in common? They all think, all of them, religious, non-religious, they all think, you're a pretty good person if you could just follow a couple things here or there, make a little tweak here or there, then you could live your best life. It is only Jesus, I've never read anybody else ever, who tells me, hey, Josh, you need to be born again. You need a totally new heart because your heart is fundamentally evil. No one has ever told me how it is, like Jesus. See, Jesus loves us enough to tell us who we truly are. But don't forget when he's saying it in context. He's telling us who we truly are in a passage of which we're trying to assess authority. Sometimes the Bible will tell us that the reason we struggle to comprehend things is because we're finite. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. We don't live very long lives. We have small minds, limited experiences, and capacities. The whole of the universe, the expanse of time, the complexities of the metaphysical cosmos are difficult to understand for someone who, so to speak, is like a child with a garbage bag over their head that only has a pinprick and they're trying to traverse the country. We're finite. But in this passage, Jesus tells us the reason humans are a bad source of authority is not just because we're finite, but because we're fallen, we're sinful. See, it's not merely that humans are short-sighted, we're also sin-sighted. We see everything through the lens of our evil thoughts, our evil desires, and that makes us a terrible source of authority. The world is a bad place when humans decide what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. So let me press the point even further. Jesus has just said that we, at the heart level, by nature, are sinners. You know what that means? It means we need Jesus. He does not need us. It means we need a Savior. He does not need sinners. It means he has rightly assessed us with infallible authority, and we are not in a position to assess him with our limited authority. Did you know that in a very real sense, Jesus is not on trial by us? We have been tried and found guilty by him. So when I state this to you today, that you need to be saved, it is not possible to overstate how significant your need is. You and I are born with hearts that are guilty, corrupt, and vile. We have a sin problem, and we can't fix it. But here's the glory of the gospel. God loves sinners. God loves people with evil hearts like you and me. God loves people who have wicked thoughts like you and me. In fact, God loves sinners. And he sent his son so that his son would bear our sin on his body on the cross so that our sin could be taken away and so that our wicked heart could be replaced with a new heart. See, the beauty of the gospel is something much bigger than it's often presented. Let me tell you some things. salvation is not. Salvation is not an afterlife ticket. <laughs> it is not fire insurance. It is not Jesus as a genie or a bellhop, or Jesus as the trunk traveler or the in case of emergency fire alarm. Salvation is so much more. Salvation means Jesus is Lord. He's the ultimate authority, and he alone is always right. It also means Jesus is Savior. He takes the wicked hearts of sinners and gives the clean heart of his own perfection. See, salvation is not a cold transaction or a momentary fleeting experience. Salvation is new life with a new heart, with a new Lord. Salvation is for all of us who are willing to admit verse 19. Would you look there again? For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Does anyone really want to argue I've never had an evil thought? Out of the heart comes murder. You think oh, I've never murdered anyone. Do you remember Matthew 5? Is there anyone in your life you got so frustrated with them I just wish they weren't a part of my life? Adultery. To want someone else sexually in a way that's wrong. Sexual immorality, to take God's perfect design for husband and wife and to pull it away from that and use it as you see fit. Theft, to take what isn't yours and there's multiple ways to do it. False witness, slander. You may refuse to admit that these are true of you and you may get angry that Jesus would say this about you. But I want to tell you the truth this morning. If you think that routines and traditions can fix you, you are going to find yourself woefully disappointed. No external tradition and no man-made fix could ever fill what you know you need. Deep down, you need a new heart. And Christ provides it. See, our fundamental problem is not that we're sinners who occasionally do some bad things. Our fundamental problem is that we are sinners by our very nature. But if you are willing to admit that, confess it, and come to Jesus today, you'll leave with a new heart. And you'll face no condemnation for all the sinful things we've done and do. And that's because Jesus experienced something on the cross that we sometimes forget. When you think of the cross and its horror and brutality, you might think of the nails. And you should. That's part of it. You might think of the spear, that's part of it. You may think of the crown of thorns, that's part of it. You know the part that I think we forget about? In some way that we could never fully empathize, the eternally perfect son of God who never thought anything bad, never said anything bad, never did anything bad, experienced what it's like to be bad and felt all of the sinfulness of everyone. Have you ever seen something that was wicked and you recoiled in shock? Imagine the eternally perfect Son of God experiencing all of our evil at once on the cross. But he bore it so that according to Colossians 2, he could remove it out of the way so that when we come to him, we could experience what he promised in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six: I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I love how 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says it. If anyone has Christ, behold, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. And this is because God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Has that ever hit you before? This week I was meeting with someone, I don't even remember which person I was having coffee with, but they were asking me about how I came to know the Lord and I shared to them a huge part of my own testimony. When I was young, I watched a cartoon and this was back before cartoons were like well done. (laughs) So was really poorly done cartoon of Abraham and Isaac. If you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, God told Abraham to take his unique one of a kind son up to the top of a hill where he would offer his unique, one-of-a-kind, special son of the promise as a sacrifice to God in faith. But at that moment, when Abraham was ready to do that incredible act of faith, God the Father cried out audibly to hold back his hand. Now, I watched that when I was young and I watched that cartoon, but I would heard the Bible, thankfully, from my parents and I had a sense that I was a sinner. And when I watched that cartoon, I walked away from it with this realization. I deserve to be the one that is crushed for my own sin. But when God told Abraham not to crush his own son, it was because God would crush his own son in place of all sinners who come to him for salvation. Has that ever hit you? that you deserve the righteous wrath of God because your heart is evil and yet God is so good that he will forgive you eternally if you confess and come to Christ for salvation. Isn't it sad that the very people who didn't come to Jesus are the ones who wore scriptures and boxes on their forehead and scriptures on their wrist and went to the synagogue every week? Jesus said to them in John 5, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you will have eternal life, but they testify about me and you won't come to me. How sad if we make the same error. The scripture's very purpose is to bring you to Jesus. So this morning, I hope you come to him. But if you have come to him, let me give three final applications for Christians. First, Christian. By Christ's power, we can transform to be more like Jesus from the inside out. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, those who are his call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Christians then are changed from the inside out. Did you know in the history of philosophy, the ancients believed that you could change by willpower and might. Moderns today believe that the best way to change is to find whatever emotion of yours is the strongest and to lean into it and to follow the emotions that define you. Jesus teaches us that change actually happens neither of those ways. Change happens when the heart loves most what is most lovely, and the most lovely object of the heart's affection is Jesus. Jesus. Galatians two, Paul writes, I'm crucified with Christ, I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me, but then he says this amazing thought. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God. Notice Paul then writes, who loved me and gave himself for me. If your heart delights in Jesus, you will transform from the inside out. Second, Christian, beware of keeping up appearances without a changing heart. There are so many religious traditions and rituals you can do that will make you look good in your social group and yet deep down your heart is never changing. Don't make the error that the Pharisees are making in this first century. Who cares if other people think you're a good person when God knows what really you are. So let him change you from the inside out. Finally, let us remember that human ingenuity, whether found in churches or in broad culture, cannot change the heart. Let me use one simple example. Can education actually fix our hearts? Think of how many tax dollars have been spent on sex education in our public school system. Is the culture more sexually moral than it was when we started putting the funds into those programs? Why do we think that humans are capable of changing the heart when humans have evil hearts. Only God can change us from the inside out and only his power has the capacity to do so. So flee all forms of fake religion and fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me close in prayer this morning. God, there are myriads of ways to fulfill fake religion. And that can happen in buildings with steeples, as I said, or it can happen in buildings with neon signs. Let us realize that if we think of ourselves as a particularly secular person who is world-wise and is well-educated, that that actually does the same kind of thing. You can lean into values and human authority and human traditions of a secular nature and think that they have power when they don't. But it happens in churches, too. Surely in church. We can play church and we can have traditions and routines and rituals that make us feel like we're fitting in well with the social group around us and make us feel like we're achieving your expectations when in fact we have nullified the word of God. Lord, help us in a culture that is so desperate to be on the right side of history and desperate to look good in the social consciousness. Help us to be people whose only well done we wanna hear is the well done from Jesus. May the one audience that matters most to us be the audience of you, O God. Help us to be right in your sight. As David learned after he sinned and had to pray, create in me a clean heart, O God renew a right spirit in me. He learned that though he was king and though he did a lot of things that were positive, the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And only that, Lord, will you not despise. So this morning, remove our heart of stone and give us a tender heart of flesh so that we can acknowledge how far we are from what we really should be so that in humility, you can change us into your son's likeness. Perhaps today that happens for someone who for the first time receives a new heart by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. Give them the power to do that, Lord. But those of us who know the Lord, bring us back to the power and authority of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God and remind us of the emptiness of all alternatives. Through Jesus I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scali pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcralheigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.